1: The Bird Show. Miserable, have you said? Oh my God, I am miserable. It's interesting that um, Kristen is bringing in this list today. I guess we're going to get all philosophical here. Uh, I think I have had, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to purposely be a little bit cryptic here, um, an epiphany over the course of the last couple of months that you, I, I think when you have the personality of sort of a fighter, that you can fight and fight and fight until you get to a miserable point before you say, okay, it's time for me to change the situation. Now I'm miserable. And I think I've just now started to realize you don't have to get to that point.
2: No, you don't. (laughs) You
1: really don't have to get to that (laughs) low to be able to go, you know what? It's time for a change.
2: Mm -hmm. So um, I saw this headline, the eight most common ways people make themselves miserable. According to a philosopher, And I found it intriguing, and then I read the article, and I found it incredibly interesting, learned something new, and so I wanted to share it in case it could be beneficial to any of you guys or anybody listening.
1: I mean, I think everybody (coughs) goes through miserable times in their Uh life, right? But as a general rule, if you find, like, life is miserable, it's time to take a left
2: turn. Mm -hmm. So this is from Jessica Stillman. She's a contributor at Inc.com. And I didn't realize that there is a phenomenon called subtraction bias. People tend to prefer to solve problems by addition rather than subtraction. So you look at your life and you're miserable, miserable. So you feel like you have to add a bunch of stuff like I got to meditate or I got to do yoga or I need to get a hobby or I need to go out and party or I need to like hang out with friends rather than looking at your life and subtracting things. Right. So that's called subtraction bias. And it's very common for many people. So in this article, you're going to hear from two experts, okay? First, you have Harvard happiness researcher. Yes, that is a job. His name is Arthur Brooks. And he recently pointed out in The Atlantic, we can improve well-being by adding joy to our lives, but we can also achieve the same aim by subtracting misery. So yeah, when I was talking about that addition, some of that stuff is very beneficial, but don't get so consumed with adding things that you forget, hey, let me look at my life and see what I might need to subtract hmm. in order to achieve happiness and joy and get rid of misery.
1: That makes, makes sense. sense. Right? Yeah, right? Yeah, I think being a happy researcher is a stressful <laughs> job. <joke>. Yep. <laughs> I do. He's probably miserable. Right?
2: <laughs> so you have Arthur Brooks, who's a Harvard Happiness Research. And then you also have Bertrand Russell. And he is a philosopher, a Nobel laureate. And he he believed unhappiness to be very largely due to mistaken views of the world. And he broke down some common misery-inducing mistakes into these eight categories. Okay. And as with most things, it's so obvious.
1: Did this guy go to Harvard also or is just a Kennesaw State grad?
2: <laughs> well, I don't know. He was writing stuff in the 30s, so <laughs> okay. I'm not really sure right. uh, what, what, where he went. So number one fashionable pessimism. In plenty of circles these days, being grumpy and cynical Mm -hmm. is taken as a sign of depth and intelligence. This is not a new phenomenon. Brooks points out, melancholy was all the rage in Victorian times too. Choosing moodiness to look cool was dumb then, Mm -hmm. continued to be dumb in Russell's time when he mocked it mercilessly and is dumb now. So it's one thing, you know, to... It's, it's not, you know, complaining is one thing, and then being able to vent and talk about what's going on is another, but if you are constantly grumpy and cynical, that mm-hmm. is going to affect your mood. For sure. Number two, social comparison.
1: hmm mm-hmm. Especially nowadays, A man. big one.
2: Russell believed that what most people fear is not falling into destitution, but that they will fail to outshine their neighbors. hmm um, keeping up with the Joneses is a never-ending game that can lead to lifelong discontent. And if you don't believe the Nobel laureate, there's modern science to prove sure, it. Sure. The solution to social comparison, according to Russell, is to focus on what you have and feel grateful. Yeah,
1: you could avoid that back in the 30s when old boy wrote this, but, I mean, nowadays you can't, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, with social media, it's a t- completely different problem.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, remember, we have one bite guy in the 30s and one guy from today, so because you, you got your happiness researcher. Now... Envy is next on the list. They go closely linked to the above mistake. Envy is the condition of feeling bad because someone else has more than you. So Russell's proposed this cure for envy. Whoever wishes to increase human happiness must wish to increase admiration Mm. rather than suffer because of other people's excellence. Celebrate and learn from it. Mm. So again, it's like tweaking little mindset stuff. All right, next is evading boredom. We are less bored than our ancestors were, Russell wrote in 1930, but we are more afraid of boredom. Boredom. So imagine what he would have made of the smartphone era. But the truth is, no gadget or streaming service can fully save you from boredom. They can, however, distract you from essential but uncomfortable reflection and creative growth. The solution is to fight to regain your capacity to just sit quietly and notice the world around you. I can't do
1: that. Uh, That that whole boredom thing, man. I have fought with it and fought with it, and I am just not good at sitting still. Um, Are you guys... Uh No, I'm not I'm good not, at it. No, no. Now that I think about it, not at all. I just know I'm going to have that problem, but no. Yeah, I'm terrible at it when I get a chance to do it.
2: When we sort of sit still, I can lay in bed, but if I'm laying in bed, I got my laptop there, I got my phone there, uh, I got the TV <laughs> on. Like my mind, my body maybe still, but my mind is like reeling. Yeah.
1: We went through this a couple weeks ago my therapist said, yeah, she could just look out of her window for an hour. I'm like, <laughs> what? Yeah, your life no sucks, bro. No, but it
2: doesn't. <laughs>
1: I know. <laughs> <laughs> I got about a minute of looking out a window at me. That's yeah. <laughs> it.
2: All right, so there's four more. Do you want to save them for tomorrow? You want to keep blowing Uh, through them? Your call. All right, so next on the list is coping with fear. Mm -hmm. Anxiety has only increased since Russell's day, and it remains a thief of joy. Russell believed that anxiety is rooted in fear of some danger we are unwilling to face. Now, Brooks, the happiness researcher, notes before highlighting modern science on the uh, biological basis of anxiety disorders, but whatever the cause of your free-floating fear, Not going to the effort of finding ways to tame it will make you miserable. So if you're struggling with anxiety, and these are very real mental health issues, instead of just struggling in silence, you're going to have to take charge and do something about it. Next up is senseless guilt. Should you feel guilty and make amends if you did something wrong and hurt someone? Of course, but Russell argued against a baseless sense of sin or feeling guilty just because you are doing well and others are doing mm-hmm. less well.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, survivor's guilt. hmm I don't feel bad about
0: that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you
2: finally got one on the list.
1: I heard that.
0: <laughs> All
2: right. Our second to last one, virtuous victimhood. Russell again feels ahead of his time with his warning against playing the victim. Russell was critical of what he called persecution mania, in which one is perpetually the victim Mm -hmm. of ingratitude, unkindness, and treachery. One version of this is what some researchers have called virtuous victimhood, explains Brooks. Of course, sometimes people really are victims of injustice, but putting unending victimhood at the heart of your identity is a recipe for unhappiness. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, This is my biggest pet peeve with some people. I know. Is this whole victim thing, man. that's Everything happens to them, not for them. Everybody's against. That's my biggest pet peeve.
2: And there are legit victims. Mm -hmm. And then there are legit people who have virtuous victimhood. Yeah,
1: those are really good.
2: And then last one, fear of public opinion. Mm. According to hospice nurses... And others who work with the dying among the most common deathbed regrets is living a life you thought others expected of you rather than the one that was true to you. Russell apparently would not have been surprised. One should, as a rule, and this is coming from Russell, one should, as a rule, respect public opinion in so far as is necessary to avoid starvation and to keep out of prison. But anything that goes beyond this Mm. is voluntary submission to an unnecessary tyranny.
1: Amen. And all this social media and everything, we're all up in each other's business now. So Mm -hmm. it's so hard to avoid some of these things.
2: I know. It's hard to avoid. And it's so much easier to feed into wanting Mm. like that public opinion and wanting the likes and the DMs. Trust me, I'm the the number one person (laughs) who wants that. Social media
1: is definitely embedded Mm. in a lot of that.
2: Right. But when I read through that list, I was like, While some of it was a little wordy and I had to read it a couple times to make sure it sunk in. Mm -hmm. I was like, this hit the nail on the head, I think, for a lot of people.
1: Uh, What's the name of the article if people want to look it up?
2: So, again, it was by Jessica Stillman. She's a contributor for Inc.com and it's the eight most common ways people make themselves miserable. Um, Rebecca has the link and we will share it on our Berso socials and also at the website. All
1: right, moving on. Uh, Cassie, is she the a-hole for making a family homeless? Is this
0: one from Reddit? It is, okay. and uh, my grandfather had a bunch of rental, residential, and commercial properties, and when he passed, he left of each of his grandchildren a house. The one he left me is in another state from there, uh, from where I live, and my initial plan was to sell the house once the lease of the current renter expires. The lease is coming up, so my wife recently went there to check out the house and to go find an agent to handle the sale for us. We visited the property to see what needed to be done and met the renters. They tried to talk us into not selling the house and extending their lease instead. They're a family with kids, and according to them, rent is going up in the city, and they can't afford another rental house. They'll have to go to an apartment, which will cost more, and they can barely afford that. They won't have a yard, and their kids are going to have to change schools because of the move. I'm sympathetic, but I didn't change my mind. I've never been a landlord and have no interest in being one. However, their pleas worked on my wife, and over the week, she tried to change my mind. She said, we can keep the house and continue to rent it to them, but I don't want to because it's in another state, and I have zero experience with renting a house. The other problem is the property management company that's currently taking care of the house informed me that Uh the state and city recently passed a bunch of rental laws that make it harder for them to do business, so they're only taking on clients with multiple properties. This made me want to be a landlord even less. If the pros can't make money on a single property, I'm definitely going to lose money. I told her if they want it, I told like her as in the family, if they want it, we'll sell them the house at market price. And then they told us that they can't afford the down payment on a $300,000 house. My wife then floated the idea that we sell the house to them on the cheap, but I don't really feel like selling the house for less than market value. Her other solution is to finance the purchase ourselves instead of going through a bank. But neither of us know anything about financing a house for sale. So I definitely don't want to do this. Ultimately, the decision is mine since it was left from my grandfather to me. But my wife is really putting the guilt trip on me to go with one of her ideas. So am I the a-hole for maybe making a family homeless? Kristen. Um,
2: I would wait until they finish the school year. I know it's not what you want to do. And if you don't want to be a landlord, I don't blame you. It's, it's, it can be so many headaches. I get that. Um, But I think it's fair to give the family a year. Instead of just booting them out. Man,
1: it's a long time. I
2: know. Well, it's it, it is, but it, it is, but it isn't. So I would let the kids finish out the school year. So next summer, I would be like, all right, next summer, you guys take time to try to find, they should be able within that amount of time to find another rental property, hopefully in that area and in that school district. So I would just try to make it as easy as possible on them to find a new place while also... Trying to unload the property mm-hmm. so you don't have that burden.
1: Is it possible to hire somebody to be the middle person here? Yes. So she doesn't have to have the responsibility of trying to be a landlord or the bad guy or the good guy. You hire somebody else to do it, but you let them stay there for an, uh, a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, those, those, those jobs exist. Yeah. Like you can hire a property. It's a mm, property manager right. is what you're hiring.
1: I, I I don't know what I would do in that situation. I, I'd like to think that I'd be able to find a way to get a family some time to really figure it all out. But with my experiences with landlords, if she does end up going the direction of doing what she has to do for the home, I don't think that makes her an a-hole. But I think if, if there is another way, she should
2: pursue it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm in the same boat as all y'all. Like, I don't think it makes you an a-hole. I just think it's a really complicated business situation. And I think Kristen came up with a great plan. Like, give them as much time as possible so that you can do what's best for you in your financial situation. So then you
0: don't also have to become a landlord, but then also you're not just like booting them out on the street tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I think that they're the a-hole because the wife wants to keep it so badly and let the family live there. Cool, wife is the property manager. Wife can handle all uh-huh. of that. And as long, I would say, as long as we are making some kind of money uh, every month on, or at the end of the year, once it flushes out with replacements, as long as we are in the black and the profit margin. Sure, they can stay, but it's on you.
1: What were most of the comments on Reddit?
0: It's split. It's pretty yeah. split between like have a little like compassion and empathy for the family. And also, hey, that's not your problem. You you inherited the house and it is what it is. That's just what life is like.
1: The Burt Show. <laughs>